pray, what do you tend to pray for? I was reading a survey recently, and it said that 9 out of 10 Americans pray, which is pretty high percentage. I didn't realize 90% of America was praying. So when we pray, what do we tend to, to pray for? Are we praying for our country? Are we praying for the election? Are we praying for peace in the Middle East? When you pray, what do you tend to pray for? Do you pray for your family, your business, your finances? What do you tend to pray for? As I was doing some research on uh, prayer, I, I found some clever prayers I'd like to share with you from children uh, specifically. Uh, I like this one specifically. Uh, little Joyce prays, Dear God, thanks for the little brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> Didn't really want the little brother. I wanted the puppy. God, okay. Little Peter prayed, Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this summer. He's mean, but I'm sure you already know that. Take care of Dennis. Let him go somewhere else. Uh, I saw this picture I thought was pretty clever of a kid praying for a bike. Uh, it says, I asked God for a bike, but I know that God doesn't work that way. So I stole a bike and asked God for forgiveness. <laughs> I'm pretty sure God doesn't work that way either. I don't think that's the way that it works. I also found this really funny t-shirt. I feel like I, it's a little old, but I got to share it with you anyway. It says, dear God, my prayer for 2019 is a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix these up like you did this past year. I got the fat body, but the thin bank account. Could you reverse that, God, please? When you pray, what do you tend to, to pray for? As we continue our sermon series on living a life that makes a difference, we're going to turn to King Solomon, who prayed a powerful prayer that should really guide all of our prayer life today. To see what King Solomon prayed, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles, your iPhones, your Androids, or whatever you use, uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 3. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you have given us your holy inspired word that we might learn from you who you're calling us to be, and how you want us to live. So God, I pray that as we read this powerful prayer of King Solomon and this very familiar story, that you might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. First Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 3. Listen to God's word. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept, your, kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, 
an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke. And behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. Then I arose in the morning to nurse my child. Behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman had said, no, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king because her heart yearned for her son, Oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll again at verse 28. And by the way, I thought Casey's children's sermon was so much better than our first idea, which was to cut a baby in half. That'd be a bad idea. A little doll like a cabbage patch. They're like, oh, see, you know, that, that, that's horrible. Kids would have to go to trauma later, you know, have some counseling after that one. So anyway, good job, Casey. That was way better than that original idea. Anyway, verse 28, it says, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Notice that it says the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. We are not given wisdom and knowledge and insight from God to do nothing. We are given wisdom and insight and knowledge from God to do justice, to do the next right thing. So in order for us to live our lives in such a way that we do the next right thing, we've got to have God's wisdom. So where does wisdom come from? It comes from God, as we read in James, and as we can see in this powerful prayer of King Solomon. Let's look again at that prayer that actually begins uh, 
uh, in verse 6, Solomon's praying. He says, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you, have been, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? You know, as I read that prayer again, I can't help but notice how humble King Solomon is. He humbly recognizes, he says in verse 7, You have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. Now, King Solomon actually wasn't a child at that time. He was actually about the age of 20. We know this because if you read 1 Kings 14, you'll see that Rehoboam at the age of 41 uh, becomes king. And we know that King Solomon raised for 40 years. So 41 minus 40 is 1, right? So Rehoboam was one years old when his dad, King Solomon, became king. And most scholars believe that King Solomon, even though he's the 11th son, which is way down the line, the lineage there for King David, he's the 11th son of King David. He was probably in, the, in his 20s when he became king. And most people were expecting Adonijah to become the next king of Israel. In fact, he tries to make himself king. If you read 1 Kings chapter 1, you'll read that story. Because two of his older brothers were already dead, and so Adonijah was a strong leader. And they thought, well, he's the fourth son. He's probably going to be the right one to be the leader. But that's not the one God chose. Solomon, in all humility, recognizes that God chose him to be a king, even though he's, he's young, at the age of 20. He's now the king of this great nation. And the nation that Solomon inherits is much larger than the nation King David initially was leading. If you remember the story in 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed as the next king of Israel as just a shepherd boy, it's still many years before he actually takes the throne. But Israel was not as big, but it had grown under David's leadership. And now Solomon is is inheriting this large nation that he's called to lead. And in all humility, like a child, he says, please give me an understanding mind. Now, the first step to wisdom is humility. Humility. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear, a reverence of God, recognizing that God is God and we are not, and that we need God's help, that's the first step to wisdom. This idea of having childlike faith and being humble like a child is very consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 3, when he says, Truly I say to you, turn and become like children, Unless you become, sorry, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way we can enter the kingdom of heaven is if we humble ourselves like like a child. The only way we can gain true wisdom, the wisdom of God, is if we will humbly turn to the God, turn to God, and, and in all humility, humbly ask, as Solomon does, for an understanding mind. I'm going to help break this down just a little further. The original word for Hebrew, or for understanding here, is shema, shema, and it means understanding, but also means to hear or to listen. And the Hebrew word for mind here can also be translated as heart. And of course, today we think, you know, wisdom is up here, but really back then in ancient times, you operated out of what was in your 
heart. In fact, we see Jesus say something very similar in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 45, where Jesus says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. If I say a harsh word to someone unjustly, there's something wrong with my heart. There's a heart change that needs to take place. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. A pure heart is focused on God first and foremost, as Solomon is, asking, Lord, that you might give me an an understanding or a, a listening heart, a heart that hears your word and can rightfully apply it. I really like the way Eugene Peterson translates uh, 1 Kings 3.9. He says this, Here's what I want. Give me a God-listening heart so I can lead your people well, discerning the difference between good and evil. For who on their own is capable of leading your glorious people? King Solomon is so humble. He's like not a proud king. Even though he's in his 20s, he's exceeded everyone's expectations for himself and others. You know, he, He's clearly done well, but he's not proud. He's humble because he knows it's by the grace of God that he's the king. He's the 11th son. He shouldn't have been chosen, but he was. And so he says, Lord, give me a God-listening heart. If we want to do the will of God, we've got to have a heart that's willing to hear God's word and rightfully apply it. Now, I know sometimes we think about wisdom and knowledge and we get the two confused. You know, knowledge is all about information. And gosh, with our phones and 24-hour news cycles, man, we got more information than we've ever had before. But it's confusing information. What we need is not just information. We need transformation that happens as we open our hearts humbly to God and seek His will above our own will. That we need to read God's word with a, a humble attitude like a child would so that we might be teachable and faithful to apply it to our lives today. So how can, we, how can we help foster a listening heart so that we hear God's word and we gain the wisdom of God and we can rightfully apply God's word to our lives today? Well, our program staff has been reading this book, Pursuing God's Will Together by Ruth Haley Barton. Uh, just a little bit of background about Ruth Haley Barton. Um, so she's a spiritual director uh, and she actually was on the, the staff of Willow Creek Church in Chicago. I don't know if you've heard of that church in Barrington, <laughs> Illinois. In the 90s, it was like the fastest growing church and they were like, did all these church growth model um, uh, different uh, conferences. They were like the model church. Everybody wanted to be like Willow Creek Church in Chicago. And she was on that staff with John Ortberg. Y'all may remember John Ortberg spoke at our church. He's written a lot of books. Great guy. Anyway, there were colleagues on that staff and in, the, in her early 30s, Ruth Haley Barton burned out. She was working so hard all the time, burning the candle at both ends, had no real sacred rhythms to have a sustainable ministry. And so after resigning from her position, realizing I've burned out, she went back to some of the earliest church fathers and really the teachings of Jesus and the practices of Jesus that we find in scripture. And she realized, you know, I've got to honor the Sabbath. I've got to keep it holy. I have to have some time off. But I also need to, I need to turn to God's word for how to pray for wisdom how to pray for God's will to be done. And so in this book, Pursuing God's Will Together, she talks about before we pray for wisdom, we should actually pray what she calls a prayer of indifference. In fact, St. Ignatius uh, talked about this a lot. The idea is that you pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Before he was betrayed, he went away from his disciples and he prayed to his heavenly father, knowing that he was about to be betrayed and crucified. He said, Lord, if it at all possible, Please take this cup, this cup of suffering from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And so she, I think, insightfully points out that the best way to pray for wisdom is to pray a prayer of indifference first, to pray 
that God's will is done, whatever that is. And then you'll have a more open heart to hear what God's word has to say and how you might rightfully apply it. She says it this way in her book. The prayer for wisdom needs to indicate that we are truly open to the wisdom of God, which is often foolishness to the thinking of the world. It may not fit with the wisdom found in the current New York Times bestseller list or the latest Harvard Business Review article on leadership. This is why indifference precedes the prayer for wisdom. We need to be indifferent to our ego's need to be seen as wise by human standards. We need to be aware of any of, of and utterly detached from the false self's need for control, success, and approval, or whatever else it longs for. Indifference prepares us to pray the prayer for wisdom and to receive it when it is given. I think it's pretty insightful. If we want to hear God's word, we need to first be humble as King Solomon was. We need to become like a child and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What is your will? And then we might hear it. So how do we gain that wisdom? Well, again, I love what James said, and we read it earlier, James 1, 5 to 8. He says, this is the brother of Jesus writing, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How can we make sure that we're not double-minded? And how can we make sure that we're focused and faithful and, and not turned, tossed to and fro by different, all the different ideas that we'll find on the internet? Well, if we really want wisdom, the wisdom of God, we need to turn to his word, specifically the living word the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Karl Barth, who is a great 20th century theologian, uh, talked about the threefold word of God. I think we've got a picture to show you of this threefold word of God. You can see on the outer circle is proclaimed word. And the idea is that most of us hear the word of God before we read the word of God. And of course, the proclaimed word of God is the word of God as long as it's faithful to the written word of God. And ultimately, the written word of God, all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is pointing to the incarnate word of God or the word made flesh, Jesus. Because in John's gospel, he writes at the very beginning, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, of all the terms that John could use to describe Jesus, why does he use word? I mean, it's kind of a weird description, you know, in the beginning was the savior. That's what I would have said. I didn't write John's gospel, but you know, he's like, in the beginning was the word. I'm like, well, that's weird. But in the first century, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, they believed that the, all of creation was governed by the divine logos, which is the term that's in the original Greek word. And logos, we get the, we get the English word logic from logos. They believed that ultimately it was the logos, the divine mind of God that helped order all of creation. Because even philosophers like Heraclitus could notice that nothing was permanent but change. But there seemed to be an order to the world that as the rivers would flow, they all end up in the sea and then of course, the water would evaporate and then would rain and so forth. There was this, this pattern, this rhythm of life with the seasons, the fall and the winter and the spring and the summer. And there was some kind of order. And they said, what is it that governs this order? Oh, it's the divine logos, the divine mind of God. And in that context, John writes, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled literally among us. Jesus took on flesh, this divine logos, this word made flesh, the ultimate revelation to us of who God is, and who God wants us to be. For Jesus is 
fully God and, and fully man. And as we saw in that circle, the, you know, we had the written word of God. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the Old Testament. They, they knew what God's word had to say, but they never had anyone show them how to live it out. Like the Shema, the most important commandment in all of Israel, it would have been posted on the doorposts of Israel, faithful Israelites, saying, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord to God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everybody knew that. But who was doing it? Very few people were doing it well. Or the second most important commandment according to Jesus in Matthew 22 is from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who was doing that? Not many people were doing it well. So then God sent his son to show us how to love God and how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, if we want the wisdom of God, we've got to turn to his word. But I would say begin specifically in the, in the gospels, the story of, of Jesus that we find. And if you've been with us doing this five-by-five five reading plan, you know, we just finished Mark. We're now in Matthew, right? And we're about to start the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, one of the, the greatest sermon ever preached. In fact, non-believers like Mahatma Gandhi, who's a Hindu, admired the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount. And the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount, it changes us, it changes things. You think about Martin Luther King Jr. and his nonviolent protests that he did. You know, Malcolm X said, by any means possible, that wasn't working. Martin Luther King Jr., nonviolence led to transformation of society, where Jesus says to turn the other cheek, to pray for your enemies. It's in the Sermon on the Mount we find the Lord's Prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount we find the golden rule, to treat others the way that you would like to be treated. And so if we want the wisdom of God, we've got to turn to God's word, specifically, I would say, turn to the Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But as we turn to those Gospels, we'll see that as we look at the whole Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that in Mark that we just read, there are 16 chapters. And starting with chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, six of the 16 chapters are about the final week of Jesus' life on this earth. Mark's Gospel covers three years of ministry. But he spends six chapters talking about the final week. Why? Because it's the most important week in the history of humanity. Because the most important event happened in that final week. For Jesus, who was without sin, became sin for us when he died on a cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that we might know with full assurance that in Jesus, we have eternal life. That in Jesus, we can have a, a new life as we listen to him. You may remember in last summer, we were going through 1 Corinthians, and I, we read 1 Corinthians 1.18, where the Apostle Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to, uh, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that message, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. How is it that the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God, the ultimate wisdom of God? Because at the cross of Christ, we see God loves us not this much, but this much. With an unconditional, sacrificial, eternal love. And nothing can separate us from that love. And that love defines us, and it guides us, and leads us to do the right thing as we listen to his word each and every day. If we want to be like Solomon, who is wise, we want to pray as Jesus prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And we want to pray that God would give us an understanding mind, a heart that hears his word so that we might faithfully apply it. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that as we turn to your word, 
we, are, we see the wisdom of the ages. That the cross of Christ, we can see clearly just how much you love us. And it's that love that defines us. It's that love that should lead us each and every day as we seek to live out your will here on earth as it is in heaven. As we seek to do the next right thing. So God, I pray that each one of us would spend time in your word. And many of us are going through the five by five reading plan. And we're now in the Sermon on the Mount starting tomorrow, Matthew 5. I pray that as we read the Sermon on the Mount that we might have open hearts to hear. That as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, we might pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. We might humbly come as a child comes to a lesson to learn. And that as Samuel prayed, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That we might hear your word. And then by your spirit, you might help us see how we can faithfully apply it this day and every day. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son, who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.